you like conversation on a variety of topics? Feel like no one wants to talk about the things that interest you? Tired of only hearing the same political, sports, or catastrophe talk? Yeah, we feel that way too. Join two high-functioning geeks as they discuss just about anything under the sun. We can't tell you what we'll be talking about each week because we don't know where our brains will take us. It will be an interesting conversation, though, so hang on and join us. Here comes the Relentless Geekery. Yeah, this is exciting. Let's see how he's our third, our fourth. Who have we had? This is, it's very cool that we've made wonderful connections and that they're, hey, willing to talk to us like we laughed about. (laughs) There There we go. Hey, John. Okay. You got your mic off. Let's see. How's that? There we go. There we go. Excellent. How's the look? How's the... Looks fine. I got that sort of shiny thing going on here. That's true. You got a little bit of glare from the window, but it casts your face in a heroic... sort of a noir kind of thing. There we go. Exactly. Yeah. I had a second second light over. all the radiation from his monitor, and that's what makes him... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's going to turn me into some kind of a superhero or something. Right, that's what we would hope. Try these. This is, oh boy. Okay. There we go. Exactly. These oh. are for like far away. And the screen is, it's like my eyes have reached a point where there's no sweet spot. You just have to like. To nerd it up there, my glasses. So I had Lasix a couple years ago when I had cataract surgery. And so I can see far away. I can see things just fine. But up close, I can't see. So I asked them specifically my glasses to tune them for how far away I normally sit to the computer. So these glasses, I can't really read with them, but at the computer, it makes everything look perfect. So there's nerding it up. I right think away. I followed that. Yes. Go. I just so had I an eye appointment in December. I had, a, I had an appointment in December and I'm in the early, they told me early stage cataracts, which really sucks. I'll be 60 at the end of this year. Oh. And I just, I'm going to need eight months I'm going to need the eight months between now and December to just get my head around that concept. But yes. Yeah. We've actually talked about that before. I don't have any diagnosis of cataracts yet, but I'm really not looking forward to it because I'm really flinchy. Aha. Uh-huh, we're going to bring that in about things going near my eyes. I hate putting in eye drops. I hate like when I get puffed at when they're doing the they uh, do test and stuff like that. It's just they're modern now, Alan. They don't do the puff. They have a device. They actually stick on your eye and <laughs> make everything go watery wavy. I do have the new one, but even like that, the little thing moving into my field of vision and getting uncomfortably close, I'm there's I know we always jump around in our discussions. There was a great book, great books by Gene Wolfe, the Shadow of the Torturer books. Remember those? And one of the things they talked about how one of the most base human instincts is to protect your head. Like you you react to stop an arrow, a sword, whatever might be coming at you before your thinking mind could do it. And one of the ways in which somebody gets dispatched is he's got two heads and they, he protects the one, but the other one gets killed and that still kills him. So there's a science fiction fantasy reference that even that incredible base human thing of avoiding falling and keeping your temperature and protecting your head doesn't work if you're Zaphod Beeblebrox type where you've got two heads. Anyway. (laughs) Guys, I'm going to go shut my door and hopefully my dog won't. Give me one second. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to talk Pulp Fiction. Hey, we got five minutes left. So let's mention Pulp Fiction a bit. (laughs) I really, I actually did 
make some notes to try to get i made notes as to good questions to ask and stuff here we go here we go well, don't ruin things now good questions <laughs> oh man john we started quick. yet what are we doing here Is yeah it, we no. kind of roll and we, then we figure out a good place where we started <laughs> right. okay john you well, i wish i'd uh, known that okay all right <laughs> you mentioned december when's your birthday the 19th oh i'm the 16th and now the whole world knows yeah yes. so oh yeah oh, no. <laughs> security <laughs> breach okay yeah it, it's too late now yeah. so we know you I, John. I gonna, but had i known we were on the air i would have said 28 but what are you gonna do <laughs> there we so, go yeah we know you but for anyone listening give them a brief who's this third voice on today Third voice, but only one head. Let's see. I am, I'm a lot of things, actually. If we're talking about the Pulp Fiction, from a Pulp Fiction standpoint, I am the author of the Midnight Guardian series, which began in 2016 with a book called Hour of Darkness and continued in 2019 with Annihilation Machine. And the most recent installment, it was published in November of this past year, 2022, a book called God and Sinners. I am one half of a very small two-man, small press publishing venture called Flinch Books. My partner is Jim Beard in the Toledo area. I'm in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio, where it's about, oh, I don't know, 35 degrees yeah. in mid-April. Right. <laughs> Just coming off of a couple of days in the 70s. That's that's how we roll in Northeast Ohio. Indian um, winter instead of Indian summer kind or of. Or something Indian like winter. that. Yeah. yeah. What else am I? I am the father of two, the husband of one. What else? <laughs> what else can I tell you? I, I've been a professional writer for the better part of 40 years. First as a journalist and more recently in, in marketing. That's my day job when I'm not uh, hammering out stories. That's about the short version, unless there's something more you want to know that I haven't mentioned. But uh, that, that, you know, sufficient. that sounds good. Ask Thank away you. and I'll tell you everything or exactly. just about anything. The reason that we were happy to have you on the show is because through separate paths, Steve and I both discovered you and your works and we're very happy. I'm a longtime fan of... Pulp Fiction. Even before the Quentin Tarantino movie, I had yes. read so many Doc Savages and Shadows and G8s yeah. and Operator Fights and all of those things back in back to Tarzan and the early science fiction, early horror and stuff like that. And exactly. I occasionally go to pulp cons or to pulp section of comic cons and so forth. And that's when I first discovered your work. And loved it i tend to thank you i love small press or independent presses maybe a better way to put that and i really try to my own little medici i love whatever money i've made from being a computer guy i love making sure that it goes back to people that this work deserves to be in the world it is so, always appreciated i can tell mm -hmm. you i speak for a lot of small press publishers and independent authors when when someone says they they try to support the indie author or the indie publisher it's always appreciated there you go so we've had a chance to talk a couple of times after you had done a reading at a Lakewood bookstore, after I met you mm -hmm. at a PulpCon in Westlake, if I remember right. And, yes. and just that yeah, each time, I think probably after your first book had come out, then I've tracked you. I always add people to my follow list or just become aware of them. Stalk and me. Yes. Stalk you. Exactly. That. Yes. Well, it's fun to have, uh, just to find out that there's a human being behind these things. You know what I mean? Any number of sure. authors, they really yes. are to remove. And I've never been a stalker type guy, but when we had a chance <laughs> to have a conversation and it was actually pleasant instead of, you're getting a little close there, sir. How about if you back <laughs> Stop breathing through your mouth. Yes. Exactly. I, I, so <laughs> last time, as I recall, Alan, last time you and I talked, it was at Loganberry Books in near Shaker Square in Cleveland. Yes. And you were wearing a mask as every responsible citizen does or should. And I didn't recognize you for the first couple of minutes as you walked up to the table when I 
was embarrassed about that. But, uh, but, uh, but yeah, that, that, that was last November, right on Thanksgiving, I think. Yeah, yeah, right after the third book in the series came out. Yes. And in fact, yes. as I recall, I, I because Christmas was coming up, I had to get something for my good friend Stephen. And there I was going, I think Stephen would love these. And so yes. I actually bought a couple and had you sign them for him. So it all right. is this wonderful, it all ties together. <laughs> sure. so. Have you heard from Stephen? Is he still speaking to you? <laughs> <laughs> is he yay, nay, thumbs up, thumbs down? Has he said anything? I, I was super excited to get all three of them because I'm like, I know this guy. I've seen him before. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when, obviously, Stephen and I have been doing this for a couple of years now and have a whole bunch of these in the can. And we knew we had many shared interests, but even amongst the world of, you name it, movies, comic books, etc., there's still more rarefied atmosphere, like whether you really like the older pulps. Some people, they start reading whatever was written since they were born. And in fact, yes. that's one of my common not a complaint, but it's an awareness of there really are some people that they won't watch a black and white movie because somehow yes. life didn't exist in color before they were born. Whereas I had that a joy of finding out when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, you go back to read things from the 30s and 40s, and it really was a whole different world and not now the world of cell phones and so forth. But I loved that the world was unexplored, that there was new technology that really was like jets were first around, ultraviolet light was first available. Yes, and yes. the pulps really were some of those that wonderfully popularized and threw those wonders out into the world for other people to learn about. And that's so much what you have in your series is a return to those wonderful days. Union City is a great, not only sense of place, but a sense of time for those kinds of things. Funny thing about Union City, I don't know... <laughs> I was trying a couple different names for a sort of a fictional town that was part New York, a little bit Chicago, and a little bit Cleveland. And I didn't realize till after I published the first book that there is at least one or two actual Union cities. I think there's one in New Jersey, and I think there's one out west somewhere. And I, had I known that, I might have gone in a different direction with a different name. No mayors have contacted me yet to file lawsuits, so I think right. I'm safe. <laughs> but yeah, no, it just, I was looking for something that's like, you know, Every town USA, like Metropolis or Gotham. but Exactly. Uh, um, like Springfield from The Simpsons. I think they called it that the most common town name. And they figured everyone will know somebody from Springfield. Like Bedford Falls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. exactly. But that's, to your point about history, though, that that's I'm right there with you. I have said many times to many people, including my own kids who are in their early, this, they'll soon be 22 and 20. But I try to impress upon them that the world did not start on the day they were born. And because it feels like I encounter so many people so often who just, they can't fathom that, oh, there was a whole period of history that existed before I was born and important things happened and important decisions were made and circumstances took place that sort of shaped where we are right now. Exactly. And it always surprises me that people don't really take stock in that and recognize that the world didn't just appear as we see it now. It's been a gravel, gradual evolution of a lot of different decisions and influences and decision makers and circumstances. And it all it all comes to a point of here and now. But there's a lot that went on decades ago, centuries ago and beyond. John, I got a question. Yes. Why or do you have any favorite pulps from the past? Any heroes, any books? Wow. There, the more I read pulps, and I don't read pulps exclusively, but the more I do read, the more I the more, the, no, the more I dig, the more I discover. I, I would say that <laughs> the first for me, I don't know if I don't know if I'd call. Yeah, I wouldn't have. I'm not sure I'd call it a favorite, but my, the first for me was John Carter, the, uh, the Edgar Rice Burroughs books. That was my doorway. Exactly. I was reading okay. those in my 20s. No, I, let me think. No, I was reading Tarzan 
in my teens. I read a few of the Tarzan stories. I didn't read all of them. And then I started digging into John Carter in my, I want to say my late 20s. As far as favorite characters, gosh, no Doc Savage is the go-to. A lot of people say that, but I have to say it's Doc Savage. It just uh, it really he, is for me too. <laughs> it's funny because Doc Savage keeps showing up to this day in popular culture in different iterations. I remember when the first Indiana Jones movie came out and I think it was 1981, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah, and my so. dad, who my father, who grew up in the 1930s and 40s, he, you know, he got one look at this guy and he said, hell, that's just Doc Savage with a hat and a with hat. <laughs> and at the time when he said that 1981, I'm 17 years old. I barely knew who Doc Savage was. But then I'm going to say a decade, 15 years later, when I started reading Doc Savage, I realized yeah, dad was right. Certainly we see Doc Savage in, in Indiana Jones. We see him in a lot of comics. It, it just, it just, it's a, he's an idea that keeps popping up. And he was a distillation of a lot of, a lot of ideas that predated him. But in the 40 plus years since, he keeps popping up in different iterations. Exactly. So, the self-made so man. Sort of, yeah. The, the, the super, the self-made man, the superhuman man. You know what I mean? Right. Actually, we had right. a session recently, maybe even just last one or two ago, where we talked about that, that the appeal of it to me was, how much he, if Batman follows from him in terms of he really learned all the martial arts and all the science and tried to make it so that there was nothing in the world that would surprise him and that he could use all these tools and technologies for him, surrounded himself right. with a band of assistants that also were specialists in various different places. And one of the cool things about the book is it's not just Doc wandering the world, it's the camaraderie of it. And the, yes. the like a group of friends do, they kind of like rank on each other and have their own little personal conflicts and personal achievements and stuff like that. And that was what you're, when you're a teenager, you're like, that's my, I want to be in a gang like that. I want to be the sure, good. Sure. I want to be I mean, another thing. <laughs> you definitely see Doc Savage in the Fantastic Four, I think, especially in the early days of the Fantastic Four, the Jack Kirby, Stan Lee era. I think you see him like in A-Team from television in the 1970s. So yeah, it just, it's that the idea of a team led by a really smart, really savvy guy. That, and it, there's infighting and there's there's snark, but yet when push comes to shove, they get the job done. So that's right. They would die for yeah. each other. It's not that they right, really sure. each other. It's sure. that little bit of kind of like I had used to have a weekly poker game, a monthly poker game, and so much part of the game wasn't just playing cards. It was the little <laughs> I play back and forth, the little sure. insults. Of, Boy, your money is warming my pocket from last week. You know that guy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Anyway. There's a, um, are you are you guys familiar with James Rollins, the uh, the the thriller author? Yes. Uh, he, he was in town several years ago and doing a book signing. And I can't remember which book it was. I, it's on a shelf over there that I can't see because I, it's Demon <laughs> Crown. Demon Crown. Anyways, I had read before he did that. This is, 19, this is 2017. And before he came to town, I had read an interview that he did where he when he was a kid, he read all the Doc Savage books. And I asked him about that in, in the during this, the presentation he did before the signing. He said, yeah, I read them all. And yes, they are a big influence on what I do. His whole Sigma series, I think it's called. Yeah. And he even has a character named Monk in his books, which is a nod to Lester Dent. Um, cool. This is a modern day thriller writer who's been a bestseller for the better, gosh, at least 20 years. He's been, pretty much every book he publishes winds up on the bestsellers. Doc doesn't go away. Alan, that needs to be That's your right. next talk. The influence of Pulp Fiction Doc Savage on modern literature and movies and everything. That's right. It's also worth acknowledging, like when he says he read every one of them, I have too, but that's not like most people think, hey, I read a couple dozen books. There's 181. 
it's yeah. the, the, an amazing maybe Perry Rodan outdoes him I think there's hardly any series and it you know, like and also I think the shadow has more but I think it wasn't all Maxwell Grant that is Walter Gibson, Walter Gibson. It, so that it's another cool thing that I've always I don't know why this is but I've always liked series fiction and if you're looking to read something it's sometimes great I read the whole dozen books of this but there's always the sadness when it's over and Doc Savage right. was for years and years wow they're getting republished they're putting out the omnibus editions now you know what I mean I was like so yeah. happy to have a chance to get this tap into this wonderful kind of fiction for a long time it was very sad. it's gonna it's gonna take me a long time to get through all the doc books if i ever do because yeah. that th- th- those are just one of many books i read in many genres i'd say if i had to guess right now i'd say i've read maybe three dozen maybe 30 or 40 of them but okay. that's that's just a fraction of what of the output from the original series from street and smith and of course will murray's writing his stuff i'm reading some of his and he writes very much in the lester den style Exactly, uh, but it it will probably take me the rest of my life to read all the doc stories. That's if, right. If I, I, not, I, I, even back when I was reading them, I didn't read them serially. Haha! I always had a sprinkling of I liked the Tarzan books, as you were saying. I read, read other, not just pulp things, but the mod, more modern James Bonds. I read all yeah. kinds of men's adventure, the Destroyers, and stuff like that. And sure. so it was it was cool to compare and contrast between the more modern ones that were a lot more death, a lot more gritty, maybe more swearing, more sexual escapades, whereas Doc was pretty much a Boy Scout, quite noble, quite, he hardly ever killed someone, but he let people, the villains get themselves in trouble. The Avenger was even more about that. Henry Benson, Richard Henry Benson, almost all of his victories were not he plotted against the villain, he let the villain be hoist on their own petard in various different right. ways. That was right. a particular right. thing. To your question, Stephen, to, to your earlier question, another favorite, not necessarily character, but another favorite writer is Raymond Chandler, mm-hmm. author of the the Philip Marlowe books. Right. Certainly he was a favorite. I, and I have to, this is, I hesitate to even say this because it's almost embarrassing, but on, on more than one occasion, I'd say twice, two people who have read my books have said, there's a little bit of Raymond Chandler in your writing and I'll take it. I just, I'm again, I'm almost, it's almost embarrassing to say my own name in the same sentence with Raymond Chandler. But if somebody sees that when they read that, I'll take it. Very complimentary. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'll take it. Yeah. And all the talk about Doc Savage, which I didn't really read any until I was adult later. I didn't discover him as early, but there was also Tom Swift, which is almost the kid version of Doc yes. Savage. Right. Uh, Y.A. Doc Savage. Exactly. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Doc so, Jr. When I first saw the cover of your first book and I saw the goggles, I, I mm-hmm. thought, oh, this is like G8 and his battle aces because they look like aviator goggles. And sure. Of course, when I read it, discovered, no, actually, it's the gimmick, if you will, the instrument that allows him to have enhanced senses and capabilities right, right. and so forth. And so it was... Mm-hmm. A pleasant surprise, if you will, because G8 was not one of my favorites in terms of, I don't know, I don't have a feel for adventures in the air. It helps you get around the planet to be that kind of travel and stuff like that. But so it's a very distinctive look. Is that something that you had from the moment you started the series or did you try out various different things in your head as to how will I give this guy a leg up? How will I give him special? I'm glad you asked that question, Alan, because if I can switch over to a slightly different genre, but still very much in the pulp vibe serials, the, the Cliffhangers Hanger serials from the 1940s, 30s and 40s. One of my favorites, if not my favorite, my all-time favorite was called Spy Smasher. And I've seen it a number of times. And there's something about that look that really appeals to me. It's sort of, it's not quite... World War II, post-World War One. It's that World War One aviator look, and he's got that motorcycle, and the stunt work is fantastic. 
And I've watched it a number of times. And I think it's fair to say that was a pretty big influence on the development of the character and the development of the story and the development okay. of the whole sort of tone of the, of the story in the series. So when I went to Tom Gianni, the artist who did the illustration, I said, I sent him some pictures of Kane Richmond, the actor, in that getup saying, this is what I'm looking for. And he really understood. He really got the, he understood the tone that I was going for. He understood the style and he just nailed it. Sad end to that story is Tom has since passed away. He was struggling with cancer when he was painting that illustration. And, and I went to him for the second book a couple years later and he initially said, yeah, I'll do it. Then he got involved in some cancer treatment that was really knocking him out. And he got back to me. He said, I just don't think I can pull this off. I'm going to hand it off to my friend, Doug Claba, also in Chicago, who did a great job and who is now my go-to for the covers. But, okay. but Tom really, he is the artist who really helped me bring the character to life in a very visual way. He completely captured the tone and the style I was looking for, that sort of sepia tone to that cover illustration. I dedicated the third book to Tom and I just, it just, it, it, as parting gifts go, it was a, it was an incredible gift. And I'm, it's just unfortunate. Not only were we collaborators and partners publishing venture, we became friends in the process. And I really missed the fact that he, I can't work with him again. But yeah, he, he really helped me bring that, the character to life in the tone and the style and the vibe. Yeah. And it was very much influenced by Spy Smasher, the serial. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. I, the color covers are similar enough and I hadn't really looked at it. One of the things we also talked about was what attracted me to the Doc Savage paperbacks was the James Obama covers. Incredibly photorealistic, yes. and very cool. And Yours really captured the spirit of the pulps in terms of the figure in the foreground, whatever, whatever villainy is going on. Oh no, someone's strapped to an operating table, those kinds of things. And yeah. it, there's almost tropes to that, but if they're done well, it really is what I got to, I need to find out what's going on in here. Another right. reason that I really like that is that there's people that I don't know, they don't seem to have either their own vision of what they'd like it to look like, or they don't get what the genre is about in some mm -hmm. ways to be able to not pay homage to, not slavishly follow it, but definitely get enough of those elements so that people who are attracted to that are going to go, huh, what's this? I'm curious already because it looks right, like right. a book like this should look. <laughs> you hit you hit an interesting point when you say paying homage, but not slavishly. I think, and I have to tread lightly here when I say this, I think there are those who want their modern day Pulp Fiction to read and feel just like the stuff they, that was being published 80 or 90 years ago. And I think that criticism to, is where you're not true enough to it. And, it's and I, I think to adhere that closely to that style is the disservice to the 21st century reader. I think I think you really want to tell a good story. You have to bring a level of sophistication to the storytelling that may not have been there back in the 20s and 30s. And I don't want to and I don't want to disparage any of those writers. They were they in their own way, in their own time, they were doing great work. But I think we're at a point in terms of the audience sophistication, where I think they, they want and expect a little bit more in terms of character development, a little bit more in terms of depth. Um, yes. you know, the, the, there has to be a reason why the hero does heroic things as opposed to just, I'm just a hero, that's what I'm supposed to do. I think, I, I think there has to be some degree of motivation that, that the reader has to understand. Why does this person do this? What motivates him? What, uh, what compels him to keep going back into the room where the bullets are flying? As opposed to just, here comes the hero to save the day because this is what he does in every issue. So here he is again. It just... I think readers want more than that. I think writers want to do more than that. I think to tell the same story the same way that people were reading in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, I think is just, is, it would make for a very stale experience, I think. 
I think you're right. Yeah. In fact, one of the things we had talked about was a lot of those were done, like, what's the cost per word? They were churned out on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. Oh, they yeah. Were That's crazy. Yeah. Formulaic, but it was also just they had to get it done. I, when I read your book, it was like, wow, there's a lot going on in here compared to the relatively slender right, <laughs> racks right. of various different things. And yeah. I, instead of it being that it didn't have the spirit of it, it was more, there's a lot more going on here. I love books where it's not just the plot line and enough other things. Certain authors are regularly criticized for their characters' cardboard and they too, they too much get to the point. I don't mind a little prose. I don't mind a little backstory and motivation and all that kind of stuff. So I'd say you're like, if we're going to grade on the Rodney Dangerfield system of, oh, that weighs about an A, your book was nice and thick and there was a lot going on. It wasn't filler. It wasn't. I love Charles Strauss books because it's not only the main plot line of the thing. He has so many other cool ideas going on, each of which could probably yeah. be its own book. And I saw that yes. a lot in yours as well, that you had a lot yes. of interesting things. And maybe if you're thinking about, hey, this could be a series, you want to lay those little treasures out there that th this could get answered in a successor and stuff like that. So. <laughs> Thank you for saying that, because <laughs> I, I took some heat after the first and second books from a, a couple, one in particular, a couple people, but one in particular who just insisted that the books were too long. I oh. I take issue with that. I stand by my story, literally and figuratively. I, oh. I just, I, I, it, my feeling is, <laughs> if you have a problem with a book that's any more than 200 pages long, maybe the problem is not so much with my book, but the problem is with your attention span. I, and, even and, I and, say uh, that all the time. <laughs> just, and that's, and there are some great writers who can tell a very good story in a very short time, but I don't know that it just, I don't know. I just feel, I could go on and on, but okay. it just, like, I just feel if you have a good story to tell and you need three or 400 pages to do it, as long as you're keeping things as tight and streamlined and well-paced, then you should have the luxury to do that. If you're just meandering around for four or 500 pages and not getting anywhere and not getting anything done, yeah, you need to dial it back. But if you need that space to tell a good, rich, dense story, then you should take that space. Yeah. Stephen, you've talked about how in some of the authors that you've spoken with your Undiscovered Works in this podcast, you can tell, hey, some people need an editor. They really are. They have a good story to tell, but they really don't seem to have that filter, that focus. So what, what do you think about that, Stephen? How did, you know, it, what John said is absolutely true. And the funny thing is, I interview a lot of new authors. Some of these people three months ago wrote their first book, and now they're talking to me on the podcast. And it's funny because I can't say I'm anywhere near as experienced as John, but I've gotten enough experience and talked to enough people now that I can start to tell. It's like, yeah, you're really new because you don't understand the story is the story. The story needs to be as long as it needs to be. You don't understand that until you've written some and gotten that out of the way is the past ones. Because then you can see the difference in your writing coming up. And again, I'm not speaking from decades of experience or anything, but the little bit I've done, I know that now from back a couple years ago, what I was thinking, how I was thinking of it. And that also, I wanted to ask John, so in modern times, why did you choose to write books that were basically pulp fiction books? Because and we talked about the kids and stuff. There's people that have no idea what we mean when we say pulp fiction <laughs> other than the movie. So why choose to write that style modernly? You mean that style or that period or both? Um, the style, but the period too would okay. be good. Okay. Okay. The, the style, certainly. Okay. Uh, I, I will say, I would say that I tried a few other things in a few other genres. I tried some science fiction. I tried some, I tried some detect. I, I just, 
I was I couldn't find my way in. Where do I fit in the overall scheme of, if I can use the word loosely, literature? What kind of story do I want to tell? And I tried to tell a, a science fiction time travel story, and time travel stories just make my head hurt because it's just every time you tell a time travel story, you always hit the the same paradox that you just, you know. The world we live in exists in cause and effect. And when you start tampering with that, it gets very, I get a migraine. But anyways, it. so my point is when I started reading stuff like John Carter uh, or Doc Savage, I really, I thought, okay, this is a way in. This is a doorway. This is a place where I can land as a writer. So if I can get more familiar with this type of popular fiction, maybe this is the kind of story I could tell. So there's that. And there's also the issue of the period. Because all the great classic Pulp Fiction was prevalent in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And that's a real sweet spot in history for me. Not just because, oh, it's, it's glamorous, speaking of the clothes, the style. It's just, it's, if you think about what was going on from, say, 1929 to 1950, the world was changing dramatically in ways that were just comprehensive. And everything was up for grabs, whether it was the economic depression in the 1930s and then the run-up to World War II. No one knew what the future, none of us know what the future looks like, but the world was a very uncertain place. Where's my next meal coming from? Is my brother going to come home from the war? Is my dad going to come home from the war? We haven't heard from him in months because he's on, on some secret mission, whatever. It's just, that's when people like have to make really hard decisions when they're faced, when they're confronted by circumstances like that in times like that. And that's when I think the great stories really emerge. When people are like backed up against the wall by their circumstances, or how do I feed my family? What's going to happen? Are we going to be overrun by Nazis? At what point do they start coming up the Atlantic coast? You know, what's, it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, we won that war. In 1942, 43, we did not, things were looking pretty rough and uh, nobody knew what the future looked like. And I think when you're confronted with circumstances like that, that's when the really, the people do, they they take extreme measures. And that's when the really, the really great stories emerge when people Mm -hmm. are with really make or break do or side, do or die circumstances. Right. When I've had people talk to me about like why this really strikes a chord with me, why I really love them, it's they'll often say, that's just escapist literature. And it's it, there was really tough times to try to escape from, but it was also not at all escapism. It was what you were just saying, confronting, we're really in a tough place. We really don't know where our next meal is coming from. We don't know what's going to happen during the war. We don't know what's happening with this new technology. And mm-hmm. That ability to project yourself into those things and say, what would I do in those circumstances? Would I stand up? Would I be a man, be a hero? Or would I right. kind of like be a bystander? Would I, would I be a spectator in my own life? Am I going to do right. the right thing if I have some risk, real risk right. at stake here and stuff? And those are the kinds of things that I get often out of those books is that it isn't just, I don't like my life. And so I'm trying to go to the past or to another planet or whatever else it might be. It's that there's always things to be found there for if I project myself into those heroes, I hope that I would be as heroic as they are. And that it kind of, whatever that muscle is of nobility and making hard choices and being proud of who you are. Right. Absolutely. Those are, they get, you, you work that muscle. You get where then in the real world, you can actually say, I did indeed not let a bad boss make me do something wrong. I did indeed not abuse someone when they were drunk or anything like that. You know what I mean? I think a lot of times people are not just readers, but 
people in general, they're looking for, they're looking for hope. They're looking for something to be hopeful about. And it sounds very lofty and direct, but I think, you know, it's, why do, what, what, what are we looking for entertainment? We're looking for some, something to hang on to and be hopeful about. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding that that's a, it's a through line that's running through the Midnight Guardian series. And I'm not sure if that was my intent when I started out, but that's where it's going. I think that very much it was a theme of this third book. It takes place at a time of the year when people are really trying to ha- hold on to hope. And we're, at this point, we're like, we're what? We're eight. To, it's, it takes place at the end of 1938. We're at Christmas time. We're still rocked by depression. And we know that something scary is starting to happen on the other side of the ocean. Happen in Europe, and, exactly. And, and, uh, what does it all mean? And, and suddenly this young kid is kidnapped in my own town what's going to happen to this kid? Christmas is coming. Is he going to be reunited with his family? What happens when you put different people from different circumstances, different walks of life in a, into a situation and say, okay, we got to find this kid. How do we do this? We have people who are destitute. We have wealthy people. We have Christians. We have Jews. Maybe that's a lot to throw into a Pulp Fiction story, but I don't know. It's how I roll. I don't know how else to do it. I just, yes, I want to tell a fun, exciting story, but I just... I can't do it without just bringing something more resonant to it. I just feel like I have to, I have to bring some resonance and some depth to it. I think that's, I really have enjoyed that. In, in other words, instead of it just being, Oh, a couple battles, with fisticuffs and maybe trying mm-hmm. to fight clues and stuff like that. It's actually nice to see here's what society was like back then. And they were working out how to work together in those kind of circumstances. It was very easy in 1938 to say, Wow, anybody of German ancestry? Are we getting worried that they're all saboteurs? And, and yeah. you know what I mean, and whatever aspersions were being cast on the Jewish people by those people, the number of people that were buying into that, that are they the secret controllers of the bankers and stuff? So to get people to put aside their prejudices, and boy, a lot of what you said earlier of there's the world has always had elements like this. It's not that we just learned about prejudice. It's not that we yeah. just learned about that. There's yeah. all through history, and not just going back into the 20s and the 40s, but you named the period of history. Sure, sure, There's sure. always been rabble rousers or hate mongers. There's always been yes. diasporas and people coming into new cultures. And how are they going to be accepted or carve their own way into a place in that society and so forth? And that's many of those kinds of things. Like when you're meeting a whole new civilization and you don't know anything about their religion, their technology, their, your hope that they're not headhunters and human sacrificers and stuff right. like that. But yeah. there's no guarantee about that either. You don't know right. if you're going to make a gesture or say the wrong word and find out you just insulted the king without meaning to. It's, there were really those interesting things, the clash of cultures and the exploring of the world. Maybe we were opening the world up in a way that we had never done before. Just like the, us being the melting pot and having that there were different what you call them, colonies of, hey, here's where the Swedish are and here's where the, the South Africans are and whatever. There's all the different waves of immigration that came into the United States. And each of those was um, adding to the melting pot, but it wasn't always easy. It was trying to decide, are the Irish really okay? Are the Italians really okay? And fill in whatever minority you want to have us, when will it get to assimilation instead of suspicion? And I try, it's funny because I try to make Union City sort of a microcosm of America. All the things saying, just we have a lot of, if you notice, I try to throw as many ethnic names into my stories as possible. Exactly. Some are po- yes. Polish, some are German, some are Italian. <laughs> I just, and I try to make it a city that's people who generally follow the better angels within themselves. There's a bit of a soliloquy that goes on in the second book about halfway through the district attorney, Ed Gallagher. He's talking about 
you know, he's referring to this Nazi element that has taken root in the city. And he just, he basically says, I'm paraphrasing here. How the hell did this happen? This is, how, how did this happen in a city so fair as this? That we, how did this sneak in when we weren't paying attention? Now, all yes. I'm going to say about that is I was writing that book in 2017 or 18. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> when we were and, confronted and, with that uh, same question, we thought that was a settled issue. And no. <laughs> and so it just, yeah, I'm telling these stories in a specific period of history, but stuff sneaks in that even I'm not aware of it's happening until it happens. There are things that I have frequently said, especially with this most recent book, I just writing any kind of, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, whatever, but writing fiction is a mysterious process. You, on one hand, you are consciously controlling what's happening, but on the other hand, there are things happening subconsciously that they're on a track of their own that you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily, your hands aren't necessarily on the wheel. There, I made a revelation about a character in the third book that I didn't see coming until the second book. And I realized that this character, oh wait, there's an aspect to this character's background that I wasn't aware of until the, I, the second book was taking shape. And I realized, oh, this guy has a whole backstory that I wasn't aware of, but it's <laughs> revealing itself to me in the writing of the second book. So I presented that to the reader in the third book. And if you've read it, you probably know what I'm talking about. I do. It, but I really, kind of cool. I really, your characters are real enough that they're talking to you. They're letting you know what kinds of, that's very cool. It, like I said, it's a mysterious process, but it's yeah. fascinating. And I'm, I enjoy it when it happens because it's just, okay, I must be doing something right. If these characters are taking on a life of their own and they're steering me a little bit, hopefully that's a good sign. I'm learning as I go guys. I really am. And I just, I, and I, but I'm doing it in front of an audience full of people and that's a little scary, but just it's, I hope to God I'm doing it right because I got a, I, I wouldn't say I have millions of people watching, maybe a couple hundred if I'm lucky. I don't know, but, but I'm learning in front of an audience. So I'm just doing the best I can. Well, your numbers are going to jump after being on our podcast. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Influencers, tastemakers. Hello. We'll have to get you a t-shirt. We actually do have t-shirts. Okay. <laughs> but you said something, John, from the author's perspective that I love, that you tried different things and you fell into this. And I think that's a big thing with authors is discovering exactly what you write well, what stories you write well, because yeah. we, Alan and I talk about plots and stories a lot and all the books we like, and you can do the same type of plot, but with serial fiction or steampunk or science fiction or whatever. And you got to get the stories that are you. And I think that's what yes. you discovered with that. And yeah, I It took it. a while. It did. I dabbled a little bit in detective fiction like that more. I'm going to go back to that. But I tried science fiction and it just, just, I don't know, for whatever reason, it was close to the sort of adventure kind of story I wanted to tell, but it wasn't quite there. So that it's kind of, so I, you're right. I just, I had to feel my way until I found a place where I could land and feel like I had landed safely and I was in the yeah. movie in the right direction. I, one of the things that I've noticed is sometimes people work in multiple genres and it's a very cool thing to be able to put on a different hat to say, now I'm writing Westerns. I don't know, Robert mm -hmm. B. Parker wrote very successful detective fiction and yes. then did some Westerns and did things from a female detective perspective and from the alcoholic police chief perspective. Mm -hmm. I almost thought it was very interesting that he was able to create enough distinction between them that it wasn't like, oh, we had a couple spare Spencer plots, but he had already right. saturated the market. And so he went over here. He really seemed to have created it, it not uh, distinct enough things and enduringly created them and fleshed them out enough that now even with his passage, other people could step in and say, 
this is in the style of Raymond Chandler. This is in the style of right. Robert E. Parker, whatever else it might right. be. I've read all 40 <laughs> Spencer novels. I think it's 40. I've read them all. Me too. I have to say he's a huge influence on what I do. There are moments where I, I write a piece of dialogue and I step back and I look at it and I really like it. And I think I can thank Parker for that because I just, if you read enough of anybody, they work their way into your DNA. And yes. uh, he was one of those writers. He just really just, even when he wasn't completely on his game, I'd say in the second, this maybe the second half of the last third of his career, I think he was not quite on his game the way he was earlier. And there were moments, there were times when like the stories themselves weren't compelling me a whole lot. But God, the dialogue was so good. And I just, I would read it just for the damn dialogue because it was just so punchy and snappy and funny that I just, I kept reading until his very last book. So, Absolutely. yeah. So, I, yeah. I mentioned him in specific because I, to flatter you, it really was. Your dialogue is very well crafted. It really is. Some people, they really only know how to write ex expositorily. They really don't know mm. how to talk like people really talk with they don't speak in complete sentences. There's cutting each right. other off. And there, you know what I mean? There's all kinds of more, much more human element to, sure. especially the wisecracking. It really can't be, people don't speak in full jokes. They, they can yes. speak with each other. And especially yes. when someone, to be able to have multiple people in dialogue that you can tell what kind of person they are just from how they do it, what their word choice is, whether there's simmering anger, whether there's carefree, he was yes. really good at that. And I think I see some of that with you too well, th thank you you don't you. have I, to I, I, be saying at this point the hero is really gets it in the neck it's much more there's real dislike between these two but they're having to deal with a common enemy so they're gonna put submerge that but yes. there's enough still little digging on each other because they just yes. can't they can't conceal that they just aren't, aren't the best of friends <laughs> that right. kind of and I, I first of all thank you for the comment i appreciate that i just i've I have enjoyed the relationship that has developed between Jack Hunter and the uh, police detective, Mike Dugan. Okay. It seems like I, for whatever reason, the repartee, the banter between those two gets really lively. And it just, I remember, I'm not a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino, but I remember an interview that I saw with him talking about screenwriting. And he said, it's different for, it's a different process for different writers. But for me, I put two characters in a room and I just start writing down what they say. And yes. I remember I saw that interview many years ago and I didn't quite understand what that meant. But then after writing three books and several short stories, I get it. It's just, if you understand these characters well enough, you just, you know what they're going to say to each other before you even type the words. Exactly. You know, John Sanford uh, is great with that as well. The guy who writes the Lucas yes. Davenport books, the print yes. books, his characters sound like they should sound like. Yes. And they've grown over time. They've gotten a little bit older. They get a little, when they're under pressure, they're different than when they're cool, calm, and collected. He's also a, very, a master dialogist, if that's a word. Yes. <laughs> I, I've read the first, I want to say the first like 10 or 12 Lucas Davenport books by yeah. John Sanford. What is he? What is Lucas has got to be like? 80 years old now? Is that? That's, yeah, they operate on comic book time where they are right. in suspended animation for the sake of the series. Right, yeah. And actually, yeah. he did a good offshoot of those called Virgil Flowers, another character that is like right. a hippie cowboy, but he really is smart as hell and people always underestimate him. And the, the way that he's able, also able to have multiple series that embrace different kinds of characters. His latest one is our Lucas adopted a daughter. Letty, if I remember correctly, and now okay. she's following in the father's footsteps, but she's, of course, her own woman. And in this okay. world of still determining whether we think women are actually human, that they actually are smart and tough and stuff like that, they're very good to have him show those things without having to be 
like a screed about it. You know what I mean? It just yeah. So, so if Lucas Davenport has an adult daughter now, it's been a long yeah. time since I've read those books. There you go. I think it, there was a little girl involved at some point, but she I, is now either just out of college and is now her own. I think she's either doing her own private detective stuff or she's doing it for friends and then is finding out I this. And anyway, okay. I, I don't mean to distract you from someone else's work, but those are yeah, no. good examples of that's the kind of thing that I seek out and that I've seen in yours. So thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, yeah. The microphone is on. It's good to know. There we go. yeah. <laughs> we're we're going, the show is loaded with pull quotes. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, I'm going to write all these down. Harkins <laughs> to Raymond Chandler. Yes. <laughs> wow. Uh, John, let, let me ask you, one of the things we love to talk about is all the things we do. Alan and I are quite busy usually. <laughs> And yeah, we compare notes. So what'd you do this weekend? Okay, we got this list. <laughs> Every year coming up is Pulp Fest. And I know you yes. and Jim go to that. Tell everybody a little bit about what Pulp Fest is for anyone interested. Pulp Fest is is a is an annual convention. Originally it was in, in Columbus, but it has since moved to Pittsburgh <laughs> several years ago. It is a collection. It's a convention of pulp buyers and sellers and dealers of original pulp magazines and also writers of modern day pulp like myself and like Jim. You'll find anything from pulp magazines to paperbacks to, uh, you'll find, you'll, I think there's some video vendors there. It's just, a, it's just a mixed bag of people who just really love that whole genre of fiction from, I'm going to say anywhere from the early 1900s all the way up to maybe the 1950s or 60s. And then you'll have, like I say, you'll have the more modern day writers like myself, but they're very much dialed into that pulp aesthetic. Yeah. And when I say pulp aesthetic, because there are plenty of characters who aren't really technically from the pulp genre. There's the Green Hornet came out of radio. The Lone Ranger came out of radio and television. But I, I think it's safe to right. call them pulp figures as well. If you use the general term pulp in terms of like a pulp aesthetic as opposed to pulp with a capital P. So yeah, it's, it's a fun experience. I've gone almost every year since 2009. There was, let's see, they did not have a convention in 2020 because of COVID. The following year, 21, I did not go because I had a family conflict. My daughter was moving into her dormitory at Ohio State that same weekend. But other than that, I've been to every show. First as an attendee and more in the last 10 or in the last eight years, I've gone as a vendor. But yeah, it's a fun time. It's I recommend it to many, anyone who's even remotely interested in Pulp Fiction. That is one of two shows that you really want to be at in the course of the year. And it's not just the vendors have all sorts of celebrations oh, yeah. of different authors yes. and they have talks and yes, like you're right. There's the whole pro programming aspect as well. You've got great presentations about artists, about writers, about, um, you know, periods about certain publishers who specialize in, in, in certain kinds of genres. They have in the past had guests of honor, but they haven't had really good luck with that in the last couple of years, people backing out. A lot of the guests of honors are getting up there in years and sometimes they, they commit to coming, but then they can't because of an illness or something. I think they've sort of, for the time being, they've done away with the whole guest of honor concept. But yeah, there's a lot of great presentations in the late afternoon and evenings that you just, in addition to the dealer room where we actually go and buy cool stuff. Yeah. Exactly. One of the things I love about going to those conventions is we are, none of us are getting younger. And yeah. just like they had a big project, like from the Smithsonian or something like that, where they were determined to talk to as many makers of Appalachian music as they were dying, they were leaving us. Yeah. They don't capture so much of that is oral history and especially oral performance. We're going to lose it. And that's right. one of the joys of going to pulp conventions, comic books, science fiction conventions that you really get to meet 
the Ray Bradbury's of the world before we lose them. The that we've already yeah. uh, any number of pulp people are already gone, but the, there's like you said, maybe it's unfortunate that the, the guest of honor you know, really would like to meet. I don't know, Hugo Greensback, is he still around? No, I don't think no, so. No, there's all kinds of fantasy yeah. <laughs> figures that I yeah. would just love to have one more conversation with. So at least there is this wonderful venue. I'm not sure who the organizers are, but labor of love to say, all the people who are into this, we're going to have a way that we're all going to gather for three, four days. And we'll just right. revel, revel in the fact that this is still going strong, that there's we get to meet each other. And I love that those things are still going on, even if yeah. it really is, wow, 80, 80 years <laughs> at least since it was lively. But that's the whole point is that some of those things change people's lives they really want to continue to have a chance to talk about them to celebrate them and meet the people who did them and kind of show off yeah i got every one of the omnibuses or whatever else it might be i think the writers from the original the original the heyday of pulp fiction that they're i think they're all gone at this they're point there, there's a guy who who has been he, he's written a lot of like adult westerns his name is robert randisi he's still alive he's in his early 70s i think and the plan was for him to be the guest of honor at last year's show and the plan was for me to interview him on stage, just do an evening present, guest of honor presentation. I would sit down with him and do Q&A. He, the, the plan fell through. He couldn't make it. So he opted not to come. And so that never happened. But and he has been called the last of the great pulp writers. And he's in his 70s at this point. I think we're running out of pulp writers from the original era, it, it, whatever the original era is, anywhere from, I guess, 1940 to 19, 1970. I don't know. Uh, they're... they're there aren't many left and the ones who are maybe may not be able to make it to, to events like that. But, uh, but yeah, to your point, it's just, it's, it's a great opportunity to dial into when and where you can just to dial into that, that those folks who really like laid the groundwork for the stuff that we read today. Yeah. So one of the things I always hope in this era of there's way too much television to watch books, to read movies, to watch, <laughs> but that also means that every single genre can get its time in the sun uh, at, I just finished watching The Night Agent, and it was like a serialized, maybe 10 or 12 episodes, very much the government intrigue, you don't know who yeah. to trust, kind of like Jean Lacard. There's any number of people that are really good at those kinds of things. And it, the fact that we have Indiana Jones 5 is about to come out. And every time yeah. that one of those comes out, I really think this could be the time when they really do say there's more in this. We could kind of bring the buckets up of cool things that have this same... We're going to go treasure hunting archaeologically. We're going to fight right. the Nazis, we're, whatever else it might be. So any anything that might work that way for you? Do you have the the movie options people coming to visit you occasionally and saying, you've got a fully blown character. You could do, you know what I mean? It, it, I would love for that Thunderbolt to happen for you. I want you to be shamed by how much money they shower on you. Uh, uh, Alan, the the money up. Alan. <laughs> Alan, if that call comes in, I will take it in a heartbeat, but I don't think that's coming anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, I trust me, I have a whole lineup of actors I would like to see in my who, who? Midnight Dream Guardian. Casting. That's a constant discussion um, okay. on all the boards. Dreamcast. Okay, I, exactly. I, I said that because I wanted you to ask that question, Stephen. Um, <laughs> uh, I think like Chris Pine. Okay. Yeah. Um, As Hunter. Exactly. After okay. he shaves that beard back off, just, <laughs> the beard's got to come off. And I like. Emma Stone as Betty Carlisle. Okay, yeah. uh, I like, I, I cannot already... figure out, I cannot figure out who's going to play Buzz because Buzz is a very special character. He is, that's, Buzz is a character I hear about a lot. A lot of people say, I really like Buzz. 
he's like the conscience. He's he's not just Jack's conscience. He's like the conscience of the city. He's that sort of like boyish, good-hearted, innocent, but crazy smart guy who pretty much knows how to build and fix anything. He's inspired by a couple characters I've seen in film and read in books, but I can't figure out who would play him in, in what modern day actor would play Buzz. I'd like Kevin Costner for Ed Gallagher, the, uh, the district attorney. District attorney. I'd like exactly. Paul Rudd as Bart Maxwell, the reporter, the columnist. Okay. I think from the first book, Nikki Diamond or Nikki Dynamite would be, let's see. Well, Paul Muni is dead, but that's who I picture for that character. The tough, kind of crazy, don't know what he's... A little he's crazy, doing. yeah. Exactly little, that. Yeah, so who's yeah kind of like... Yeah, Eric just Roberts, like, Willem Dafoe, I'm trying to think of... Okay, a, yeah, sure, okay, sure. That, 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 there's something in the eyes. Michael Keaton playing a villain. You know, yeah. He was respectable, but then he goes... Yeah, in. like, I, I, want that, I want the actor who you put him in front of a camera and you don't know what's going to happen. Like Exactly. Like, even yeah. when you're the director, you don't know what's going to happen. That's who mm-hmm. I want for Nicky Diamond. Nicholson yeah, I, 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 40 years ago. I think. Sure. Yeah. Or maybe or maybe Vincent D'Onofrio 70 pounds ago. Just okay. You know, yeah, because he's got the kingpin thing conquered now. Well, sure, yeah. time when he was leaner, like you're saying. Exactly. Okay. Right. But I, lo- I love D'Onofrio because, like I say, you put him in front of the camera, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And so, yeah. And then I've even picked out like <laughs> actors from the 1930s from that period in history who well, would be. Good at they it. can I'm do that now someone... with all the deep fake stuff. They... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> See exactly where. <laughs> sure, Jackie. Oh my god. Oh my god. Lou Gehrig. Why am I? The actor. James Stewart. No, Pride of the Whoops. Jesus. I can't believe I'm. Yeah, Pride of the Yankees. Pride of the Yankees played Lou Gehrig. He played. Oh my god. I can't believe. Really? <laughs> He's like the one of the most iconic actors in in, in the history of Hollywood. Gary Cooper, Jesus, Gary okay, Cooper. Gary Cooper, yes. That's why. Right. I, I, I wanted to say Jackie okay. Cooper, but that's just okay. a different guy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so anyways, yeah, I, I like him as a 1930s version of Jack Hunter. There we go. But, See, uh, that's when the casting people come to you, you'll be able to say, here's the kind of person that I had in mind while I was writing it, or yes. that it occurred to me that while I was writing it, they started to inhabit your those yeah. icons, you know what I mean? This yes. is, they, there are modern equivalents of, I don't know, going back to the 30s, who looks like, Peter Laurie, who looks like right. acts like Sidney Greenstreet right. and the whole Sam Spade that is Humphrey Bogart, sure. you know what I mean? Sure. That, that inhabited that. There's there's things that do we have modern equivalents of some of those? I think so. Who's sure the hard boiled like, detective? Yeah. Who's the who's the wisecracking, brilliant guy? Is that so Simon? Who did let's see, who's Scotty in the latest Star Trek movies? Simon uh, Pegg. Pegg. Simon Pegg. Yeah. But yeah. not is he he's already it's funny. Some people age out of the program while they were trying to get one flew over the cuckoo's nest made. Kirk Douglas couldn't play Randall P. McMurphy anymore, even though he owned the rights to it for a long time. So anyway, right. I'm just... But yeah, no, there's, there's, a, a, whole, there's a whole generation of younger actors that I'm just not even familiar with. There are probably some great... <clears throat> there are some great actors who would play the parts that I can't come up with, but, yeah. but they're like something like between, say, 25 and 35, and I'm just not dialed into that right. generation of actors. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. But, Who's um, got a little wear on them? Who's got the perfect chin? Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And with all the streaming and all the content being made nowadays, you got a good chance. I could see a station, Tubi is doing serial shows now, and they're free TV, but what's his name that did Wool back in the day? His shows now getting, or his books getting made into a show. So I would love to see a good Pulp Fiction-ish noir feel show. We don't really have that now. 
Again, if the call yeah. comes in, I'll take it in a minute. I'll, I exactly. just, I, I'm happy to talk to anybody who wants to talk to me. But yes, I'm not holding my breath. But uh, yeah. Right. So uh, you know this piece, Stephen. I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Alan. Go. No, I'm going to be the stereotype for a moment. Everybody else says, "Hey, where do you get your ideas?" <laughs> Stephen and I often talk about, "Wow, I have so many ideas that it's more a matter of choosing amongst and quieting the chorus of all the things it could be." How do you work? Do you have already ideas for? a fourth and fifth and sixth book? Or are you waiting for inspiration because there is something in the modern world that you'd like to be able to? One of the joys of past fiction or science fiction is you can really comment on what's going on now, but if it's the Borg doing it, then you're not <laughs> getting in trouble for being too right. sharply focused on something like that. Do you have certain subjects you'd like to visit or do you have certain locales, certain <sighs> menaces next for your main character that you want him to go through this kind of trial by fire? Or... There's a couple different ways to answer that question. There's certainly, there are plans in the works for Jack Hunter, Midnight Guardian, where it should be fairly clear by now to anyone who has read all three books that we are, we're careening towards World War II. And and here's this guy in this city, this sort of cosmo, cosmopolitan is a word that you can use in the context of the 1930s. Here's this guy who with this, with this, these abilities, these enhanced abilities that are almost like a secret weapon. And the question becomes, at what point do, you know, do people in positions of power and authority recognize this guy could be an asset? And that's all I'm going to say, but we're heading in a direction where we're heading towards international conflict. And, and here's somebody who can do things that most people can't. Okay. And at what point does that become a secret weapon of some kind. Is it going to be by request or is it going to be dragooned into doing it? Because... Hey, that's a very good question. And okay. I have an answer to that, but I'm not going to tell you. Okay. <laughs> no. um, then oh, oh. another way to answer that question, Alan, is there are other, there are other periods of history that I would like to explore. And there's the whole cold war thing. And all I'm going to say about that is I have introduced, I have already introduced a character who you will likely see again in a different series taking place in a slightly different period of history. Interesting. And the making of the uh, generational saga. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. It, 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 my, my problem and I, it, is that I'm interested in too many things. Yeah. Recently, totally I'm familiar. <laughs> recently, I've developed this fast and it always had, I've always enjoyed delving into the various aspects of the history of World War II. The causes, the various battles, the various campaigns, the individuals involved in shaping the war and how it turned out, the technology that was developed to, to take us from 1940 to 1945. Lately, I've developed a real fascination with the French resistance in the early part of the war. There have got to be a million stories in, in, in that whole aspect. Of the underground the and the, okay. Just, exactly. Yeah, okay. I mean, that you, I feel like you could build an entire series around that probably shouldn't say too much that no one steals any ideas but okay and, and there's in the last couple of months i've been working on a couple of short stories westerns actually one is for a flinch book that's a flinch anthology that's coming out in mid-year and another one is for a, an anthology being published by stormgate press i'm not, not sure if them or not okay. so i'm kind of immersed in like the whole western genre right now i'm like eating sleeping and breathing i'm reading a lot of westerns is to immerse myself in the genre I'm finishing up two stories. I'm looking forward to getting those behind me so I can get back to reading and doing and writing some other things. But I don't know that I ever would pursue writing Western novels on a regular basis, although I wouldn't rule it out. It's a genre that's very foreign to me. There's something in there about 
scale, the sheer physical size of the of the unexplored Western United States that just I can't get my head around. It's if you tell an urban noir story, your stage is maybe a couple blocks of a, of an urban city and no one can see much farther than the wall of that office building that's maybe a hundred yards away. But right. when you're out there on the plains, you look out and you can see that Indian scout sitting on a horse on the top of the ridge, literally a mile away. I grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland. I can't imagine being able to look out that far and see a rider on a horse. I just, it just, it's a, it's a, it's a, sense, it's, it's a sense of scale that I really struggle with. It just, you look out and all you can see is open land and mountains and sky. I just, yeah, that's I a just, very cool observation. You know, I have been, yeah. We've been all over the United States traveling, and that's one of the things. Yeah. Once you get out, the mountains are bigger, the valleys are bigger. You really can get. We're at the top of one mountain, and you look down the valley to the other one. It's, it looks like, oh, we're going to be we're going to be at the mountains soon, and then you drive a whole day, and you're not yes. to that next set of mountains. You know what I mean? Right. For a writer who's not familiar with that kind of landscape because he's never lived in a landscape like that, I think that's a big leap to just to try and write stories that take place on a stage that is that large and that wide open and that sparsely populated. It's just like the whole style of storytelling, I think, becomes different because your sense of space is different. And that's not to say I never would do it or never would want to do it, but it would be a big shift in gears to try to write about write stories in that kind of a setting on a regular basis. There are others, as we've talked about, Stephen and I, about Louis L'Amour wrote any number of great Westerns, and yes. Elmore Leonard actually started off doing Westerns and yes. turned more to a hard-boiled detective, and so there are people yes. that do multiple things, but there, there almost certainly is a change in mindset where it really matters that where your next watering hole is as compared yes. to I walked into the other room and turned on the t- You know what or, I mean? Or, so. you know, I drove to the gas station or I just, yeah, I went into the diner to get a cup of coffee. It just, it's a whole different, and that diner is a block away. Maybe you're walking like 150 yards, whereas like you say, in, in, or you're riding a horse for four days to get to the next mountain range. It's just a whole different experience. Sense of scale. And, um, That's very cool. Okay. Yeah. I'm just... <laughs> I'm not sure I have it in me to do that. I, I'm open to trying, but I don't know. It's, it'd be a challenge to do it on a regular basis. Yeah. So do you have a writing environment? Is there a certain room where you have a certain music? Certain, <laughs> like, how do you have a dog? Do you have a family? How do you get, do you need focus? Do you like having a little bit of distraction? Steve has talked about this a little bit. That Stephen has how he works best. And I have never taken on any big works, but I'm often at the computer and I'm writing my little essays but I don't need to isolate myself necessarily to do that. I do it more with coding because I'm a computer guy. So right. back to you. Do you have a happy place, time, et cetera? Do you outlast everybody and do it at two in the morning? What do you do? <laughs> it's funny because I will tell you right now that the, the, this laptop and the camera that is embedded in this laptop is carefully positioned so that you don't see the freaking mess that is in this office. The chaos. Okay. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, turn this maybe like an inch and a half and you'd see a very different picture. But the reason um, I use yeah. backdrops is so that you can't see. Oh, Lord. Yes. I'm up in Skynet I mean, yeah, here I, in the attic. <laughs> and he's a lot of stuff, this guy. He's a collector. You could tell. Okay. <laughs> I, got a, I, I see. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We're frozen a little bit. Uh-oh. Here's hoping it's just a matter of lag as compared to we've lost him. Was, oh, no. John, if you can still hear us, you're frozen on our... We Oh, we uh, dropped. Okay. We'll just hang here because, yeah, maybe he just... Okay. He's coming back. All right. Yeah. 
Uh, there we go. Okay, we, I got timed out. I'm not sure what happened there, but uh, sorry, guys. It just, <laughs> it just told me you, you have timed out. What, what do we have? We're at like I guess we're, we're at an hour and wise or something. Yeah, I did. Okay. Okay. Anyway, I'm sorry. So, anyways, so yes, I have a lot of certainly a lot of books in here and a lot of clutter. It's not the ideal, but it's it is my space. We have we we live in a, a modest post World War II bungalow. It's pretty much myself and my wife now because my our kids are in college and they're home for part of the year. So there's more room and there's more time than there was before. So that's good. Um, but it's also a matter of getting my head in the right space internally as opposed to what's going on around me. I have to get focused and I have to, I have a day job. I work at home, which is a whole story unto itself. I work for a company, but I work at home. Thank right. you, COVID. So that eight hours of my day is still focused on that. My you wife is very good about me. Yeah. Big part. You have to handle the transition between their time and your time because my yes. wife has a lot of problems with that. She also works at home and she is regularly given more to do than she should have. But then yes. how much of your life do you keep giving over instead of grabbing some back for yourself? Yeah. And you have to, when you work at home, you just have to like, you have to say, okay, it's time to stop doing this job and go back to my life outside of work. And then you have to negotiate. What does that look like? I want to make sure I'm spending time with my wife. Yes, we have a dog to your question. He requires a certain amount of attention, but my wife is very good about giving me time and space to do this. She's always been extremely supportive, so that's good. So I would say I have more time now to write than I did, say, a few years ago when my kids were in grade school and high school when they needed more of my time and my attention. I wish I had the wherewithal to clean up this space and make it feel more inviting and conducive to being creative, but this, this room has become like the storage area for stuff that I don't want to think about right now. So I'll just okay. put it in there. But I cleared off this desk for the sake of this conversation so we could do it here. So it's a good first step. We appreciate hopefully... you not peering out from between stacks and stuff like yeah, that. No, okay. yeah. It wouldn't take much, let me tell you. Yes. Yeah. So hopefully that answers your question. I don't know. So, yeah. John, we've mentioned uh, Jim a couple of times and you mentioned Flinch. Tell everybody what Flinch Books is and what you guys do. Flinch Books is, we, we've been publishing now for, let's see, we are, this is, we are in our eighth year, I think, or it was, Excellent. no, it was eight years in January. So I guess technically we are starting our ninth year. We emphasize quality over quantity. We don't publish a lot of titles in a given year. We average about two, maybe three some years. We're just a two person operation. It's the two of us. And we have a, an a very excellent graphic designer who helps us with our covers and our internal page formatting. She's fantastic, but it's just the two of us. And we publish books, mostly anthologies, but also long fiction novels in the spirit of, and that's an important phrase, in the spirit of pulp fiction, classic pulp fiction of the 20s, 30s, 40s. And I say in the spirit of, because to get back to a point we were talking about earlier, we certainly want to want to latch onto that aesthetic, but we also want to do it in a way that's a little bit more progressive, a little bit more interesting, a little bit more put our own spin on it, but very much with a nod to that period. We've done everything from science fiction to okay. adventure to detective. Jim has his his occult fiction, his occult detective series called Sergeant Janice. There's three books in that series. I think he may be working on a fourth eventually. I'm not sure what the plan is there. As I say, we're working on a Western anthology right now. We've done sword and sorcery. We're open to anything that's going to work. We're open to anything that's going to just tap into an audience, but yet give them something that's maybe a little bit different from what they might be getting from other small press publishers like us. Um, the phrase new pulp gets thrown around a lot. I'm not fond of it, 
for a lot of reasons, but I just like to think of what we do as being in the spirit of Pulp Fiction from back in the day. But not straightjacketed by it, if you will. Okay. Yeah. Correct. Yes. I'll tell you, I, I am much a fan of your stuff. I haven't explored the anthologies. I haven't explored the, the the Detective Janice series. My wife will be happy to hear, Pookie, I need to go buy some more books. <laughs> the <Pulp laughs> <Best> is coming. <laughs> but we, really, we are... We are working on a website, hopefully. I don't know when it's going to happen because it's a costly endeavor, but we need to have a centralized place on the internet where people can go and just see all of our books. We'll be up to near 14 by the end of this year. Uh, again, not as many as some publishers who are cranking them out like eight or 10 titles in the course of a year, but I'd like to think that we deliver a level of quality that you might not see elsewhere. Nice. You got anything else, Alan? I, I, we've done the or plus. I, that's what we were hoping for. Yeah. I'm can't thank you enough, John, for it's taking really the time great to talk to thank us. Thank you. I appreciate your, it. I appreciate uh, it. Getting insight into who you are, what you do, why we are fascinated with these kinds of things. And just, it's, uh, it really so much appreciated. You know what I mean? But the point of relentless geekery is because it's got many faceted diamond. And this is one of those things that it, it's, not only a joy to read the works, but to meet a little bit the people behind them and then find out that they're actually pretty cool too. You know what I mean? There's all manner of creators that are, you name it, a little prickly or a little, I don't know, full of themselves. And I, you are wonderfully down to earth and wonderfully aware of uh, why you love it and why you love sharing these kinds of things. And so it just, it builds my enthusiasm as opposed to can't separate the art from the artist where you're going to have to, because this guy's kind of a jerk and you're not a jerk. <laughs> you know what well, I mean? Thank so. you. Just, I'm just a guy trying to tell good stories. And I just, and I'm happy to talk to anybody about the process, about the end product. You guys have both individually and together have been very supportive and it's very much appreciated. I think people don't realize that a lot of times, a writer needs to hear, again, If is the mic even on? Are people even listening? Are people reading to this? Are they reading this stuff? Are they right. aware of what I'm doing? Am I just doing this in isolation? Is anybody out there? I have often said, I write my books. I publish my books. I send them out into the world. They're like a message in a bottle. And you just, I put them out there and just wait to see what comes back. And the, when I have opportunities to have conversations like this one, it's 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 encouraging to know that there are people out there who are not only reading this stuff, but actually kind of like enjoying it and they're waiting for more. It's good <laughs> yeah, to know. So exactly. Thank you. Bated yeah. breath. There we go. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks, Thanks Stephen. John, for appreciate you. It. Perfect. Thanks, guys. All right. Appreciate it. We'll see you All again, right, maybe, maybe at Pulp Fest. I'm going to try and go. I we will day. be there. We'll be there. Yes. Absolutely. When's the next one? August, maybe? August. I think it's oh shoot. I think it's like four, five, six, seven. Or yeah, it's, is it first, about right. first weekend in August. Three, four, five, six. <laughs> yeah, it's it's Thursday right. through Sunday. So it's whatever that first Thursday through <laughs> Sunday is. It's uh, that we were sharing birthdays. Mine is right around there. So maybe that'll be my oh. treat for myself. Is that oh. I go wallow in Pulps Kalink and explore Pittsburgh well, and et cetera, et cetera. So you got me John's trilogy. I'll have to get Jim's. Sergeant Janus, because you said you don't have them. I've read the first one. If you're saying that I might They're need a very good book. Oh, okay. Very good books. They very good occult detective stories. They're fantastic. Like if you ever read Karnacki, some more pulpish type fiction time. Exactly. Is that Simon Green? I love his stuff. The Karnacki Institute, that kind of stuff. Okay. Ah, yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's right in that, it's that right in that wheelhouse. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. All right. All right, gentlemen. Thank you. Very have much. Good evening. Good evening, everybody. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, okay. guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This has been the Relentless Geekery Podcast. If you enjoy our conversation, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and go give us a review. Give us some likes. It would help a lot. 
Check out our website, RelentlessGeekery.com, where we have links to our Facebook page, Join the Conversation, and go check out our YouTube page, where we have the video of this and other episodes. You have been listening to the Relentless Geekery Podcast. Come back next week and join Alan and Stephen's conversation on Geek Topics of the Week.